You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. <laughs> Welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I'm Jason Buck from Mutiny Fund, and today it's my pleasure to sit down with Chris Cole uh, from Artemis Capital and talk about all things long volatility. Looks like it's a beautiful day in there in Austin. Chris, how's it treating you? Uh, it's beautiful, but a little hot. So uh, <laughs> this this time of year in Austin, Texas can be a little trying, <laughs> but uh, sunny as always, though. Great. Um, I was going to start with an easy question, but it actually might be a very difficult question to answer. You know, you have popularized the idea of long volatility. I think that your white papers and everything have have brought the idea into the zeitgeist of of what long volatility is and and why people should have it in their portfolios. But just a simple idea is, what do you think long volatility is? How do you define long volatility? What what kind of philosophy do you think long volatility entails? Volatility in markets. Being long volatility in, in markets is one thing. Uh, being long volatility in life follows that, um, and they're very similar. It simply means uh, making change work to your benefit. And usually that involves uh, paying maybe some sort of small upfront cost uh, to transform any type of extreme change in whatever direction to work in your favor. Obviously, in markets, uh, when you're long volatility, you're long an option, and you could profit from extreme movement to the right or the left tail. Um, and you usually pay something um, in order to, to have that, that exposure, and the profit is nonlinear. In life, when you're long volatility, uh, you pay some upfront cost. That could be maybe meditating 20 minutes a day. It could be working out. It could be uh, putting yourself out there to make new relationships, and uh, that makes you... Uh, uh, benefit from change and be able to handle the changes of life and uh, to transform those to be uh, a positive rather than a negative to you. Fantastic. So we've been exploring the idea of why add long volatility to your portfolio. And I, I love a good metaphor. So I love when you talk about uh, Dennis Rodman. So you and I coincidentally happened to grow up in Michigan around the exact same time. <laughs> So we got to experience in a formative years the uh, the original bad boys Detroit Pistons Dennis Rodman. But I think you know across the globe, due to this new documentary, you know The Last Dance, people have gotten more exposure to Dennis Rodman. So talk to me how you think about Dennis Rodman as long volatility. Well, I love this metaphor. Uh, most people, obviously, Dennis Rodman is a colorful personality, um, but he's also a member of five championship teams. And uh, there was a tremendous uh, piece of work that was done, statistical analysis, that actually came out and said that Dennis Robin was one of the 20 best players to ever play the game of basketball. And there, that analysis was backed by a substantial amount of advanced statistics. Well, Robin is the lowest scoring inductee in the Basketball Hall of Fame. He, uh, the, the highest scoring he ever did in a season was 11 points. Uh, he, he was not a threat to score, as you know. Uh, really, outside of dunking the basketball, he was not really a threat to score outside of five feet. Uh, but despite that fact, something really bizarre happened when Robin was on the floor. When you put Robin on the floor, the offensive efficiency of his teams went through the roof. 
His wins over replacement value were among the highest in NBA history. Uh, he, you could put Robin on a mediocre offensive team, and it would turn that mediocre offensive team into a, a very, very good offensive team. If you put him on a team with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, two of the best players to ever play the game of basketball, all of a sudden a really good team becomes the all-time best team ever. Why is that? What did Rodman bring to the table? Well, Rodman was, couldn't score the basketball, um, but he was good at one thing and really good at that one thing, which was rebounding the basketball. When somebody missed a shot, he would go grab the rebound. Uh, he averaged close to 18, 20 points or 20 rebounds a game at his prime. Well, this gets very interesting because at the end of the day, when you look at that, uh, if you're grabbing 10 offensive rebounds a game, that converts into, you know, an extra 10 shots at a 50% efficiency, you're getting an extra, you know, good extra 10 points a game. So, you give Michael Jordan an opportunity to have a second or third shot, and Michael Jordan's not going to miss that. Scottie Pippen's not going to miss that. So Rodman, when you put him on these teams, increased the offensive efficiency of his teams, and he turned, he transformed teams into great teams, and he was unique in this fact. But people don't consider Rodman this great player because, first of all, a team of Dennis Rodman's is not is not going to work. You need to pair Rodman with other scorers. And people overlooked these other defensive contributions that Rodman did because he didn't score much. Dennis Rodman is a lot like long volatility in the portfolio. Long volatility is an asset class that tends to be anti-correlated, uh, and it tends to do best when there's a lack of liquidity, when stocks are crashing, when bonds are malfunctioning, when uh, when there's uh, t terrible uh, credit uh, drawdowns, and long volatility, when when the rest of the world is sucking liquidity out of the system, long volatility is giving you liquidity. When you need that extra shot in the fourth quarter, long volatility is rebounding the basketball and giving you a chance to take a second and third shot at these other asset classes like stocks, bonds, real estate, credit. So very similar to Rodman, if you put long volatility in an institutional portfolio, it greatly amplifies the other asset classes. And this is not an opinion. I published a paper uh, earlier this year, uh, came out in January. I looked at 100 years of testing in various portfolio strategies and determined that a portfolio that had what I call the dragon portfolio, that has substantial positive exposure to left and right wing tail volatility, putting the long ball in that portfolio at a clip at a shocking percentage of about 20% is a major constituent of that portfolio. And that portfolio has beaten almost every other portfolio that you can imagine from 60-40 stock bonds to risk parity portfolios. And I wrote that in January. And sure enough, that portfolio this year is substantially beating all other peers, um, both during the period of the March drawdown and also the recovery. It's fantastic. And not to belabor the point too much, 
But if you were to have that Rodman in your portfolio, and let's just say hypothetically, you could have negative points in basketball, would you be willing to take negative five points on Rodman knowing that line item or a stat sheet would be negative five points, but plus 10 offensive rebounds. So you'd look at that line and be like, why would I carry this player? He's terrible. He loses me five points a game, right? And that, but you combine him with the other four athletes when they're especially Jordan and Pippen, would you be willing to spend negative five points on Rodman for that plus five points, expect, I mean, plus 10 points expected value of the portfolio of players? Absolutely. Mathematically, yeah. mathematically, absolutely. Of course, exactly. if Rodman's giving you 20 rebounds and that many extra chances a yeah. game, statistically, you're going to be better off with him on the score, even though he's costing you points. And this is the problem with the thinking of coaches at the time. They undervalued Rodman. Rodman, Rodman was traded to the Bulls. They gave him away. I mean, part of that was behavioral issues. Yeah. But um, his previous team gave him away. Well, the dynamic there is that um, someone says, well, we can put a power forward in his place that averages 10, 15 points a game. But it's not as valuable as a, a mediocre 10 or 15 points a game is not as valuable as an exceptional uh, 20 rebounds a game. And it was much more unusual. Rodman's ability to rebound was six standard deviation outlier compared to other players in the rebounding space. Well, to this extent, people underestimate defense. They underestimate estimate, uh, uh, non-correlation or anti-correlation. And they underestimate liquidity the value of liquidity and investments that give you liquidity versus investments that take away liquidity. Institutions love to go find a manager with, with a, a very uh, good-looking trailing sharp ratio that is anti-fragile to change. And um, they underestimate the impact of volatility and the need for volatility. And this is why uh, long volatility remains the small niche when it actually should be a dominant part of the institutional portfolio. And once again, this is not an opinion. Uh, you can go back and look at some of the research, Allegory of the Hawk and Serpent, um, over the years. I've written many research papers over the, years, over the years, and these arguments are presented using math over and over and over again. And uh, there's, just, there's just no other way to look at it. And it just so happens serendipitously that there's, you know, five players on a basketball court and it just so happens your dragon portfolio has, you know, five categories of assets. Can you describe the other five and then discuss, you know, which ones are short ball and which ones are long ball and why that combination? Absolutely. So um, if you look at the concept of the dragon portfolio, uh, there's five different five different asset classes. And uh, the first two are are pretty, pretty basic. Uh, that could be stocks and bonds. Uh, standard. You could substitute real estate or private equity in there. Um, I would say uh, stocks would be equity-linked investments, uh, business cycle-linked investments. Um, the other asset classes would include long volatility, which plays off of both left and right tail. Um, those That's an investment strategy that profits in secular change. Another investment would be gold. That is a right tail investment that profits from periods of secular change. And the last one would be trend following commodities, which also profit from periods of secular change. Uh, asset class like uh, bonds and, and uh, credit stocks tend to do pretty well during periods of uh, secular stability. 
uh, that would really be the last 40 years of uh, uh, since uh, since the 1970s to today. The other investments do very well during periods of secular change. This includes periods of intense deflation or periods of uh, intense stagflation or in the worst case, hyperinflation. So people tend to think about left tail as the, uh, the markets crashing. We see that the Great Depression, what we experienced in March, what we experienced in 2008. Obviously, people think about volatility in that context. That's one, one element of that. But people don't understand that there's also this right tail where you can have incredible volatility with rising asset prices. We've seen a little bit of that recently. Well, we saw that in the late 90s. We saw that with the stagflation in the 1970s. And uh, you also see it in, 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 in eras like the hyperinflationary eras of the uh, 1920s with Germany, where you have tremendous spot and ball up, up behavior. Uh, we saw a little bit of that in China in 2015 as well. Uh, Volatility can do well in that environment. Obviously, gold is something where in a right tail environment where you have fiat devaluation, gold in many ways is like an option. It has convex nonlinear payouts during periods where there is uh, devaluation of fiat. And gold does very, very well during those periods where you either have a right tail risk uh, given fiat devaluation or you have uh, governments looking to devalue fiat in conjunction to combat a deflationary environment. The last is obviously commodity trend, which uh, very similar to gold and very similar to volatility performed uh, in the 1930s and also the 1970s. Commodity trend does very, very well during periods of stagflation. Uh, so the 70s were, were the home run period for commodity trend. If you take all of these asset classes together, overall, you get a portfolio that has performed for over 100 years consistently through, through every regime cycle. So you're able to consistently make money with one uh, between one-third to one-fifth the drawdowns experienced, experienced with other investment strategies, and you're able to hold these. Not all these asset classes will do well at any point in time. Long volatility has done very, very well this year. But if you looked at its trailing sharp ratio over the, uh, over the last five years, uh, it was not a very popular investment. Commodity trend hasn't done very well, and it doesn't uh, recently, but did exceptionally well during the stagflation of the 70s. If we had a stagflation come back to the United States, you'd want to be in something like commodity trend. The point is that these investment strategies, like long volatility, they're not really intended for a rainy day. They're intended for a rainy decade. So the idea at the end of the day is that you have to, you have to hold a balance of all of these different asset classes and uh, some of them actively managed uh, in order to get the benefit of that composite portfolio. There's obviously a credible amount of epistemic humility too with how, holding those assets for longer periods when you don't know you know, around the next bend, what kind of environment we're going to be in. But when I look at it, a lot of times I'd like to think about is, you know, there's mean reverting trades like stocks and bonds are, are convergent trades. And then you have divergent trades in long volatility and, and commodity trend. Uh, and then gold, like you said, it can be a fiat debasement or some sort of convexity there. What I find fascinating is that people have gotten anchored to this idea of 60-40 portfolios, right? So they have 60% stocks and 40% bonds, and they think their stocks are their offense and their bonds are their defense. But when we talk about the dragon portfolio of almost equal weights, kind of more or less across all of those buckets, is that only 40% is held in these mean reverting or convergent trades, 
while 60% is held in divergent or asymmetric trades. And that rebalance over time compounds wealth better. I like to think about it because of the huge left tail of those stock and bond or, or convergent strategies. And then the, the small left tail, but the right skew of those divergent trades. How do you kind of think about that combination at the portfolio level? You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I, I think about the same I think about the same concept. One of the terms I've used historically is just to say that there, there are really only two asset classes, right. uh, long and short haul. And that's just another way of, of, of describing what you eloquently said um, in the idea that you have, you have assets that uh, are based on the assumption of mean reversion and that are correlated to the business cycle that assume stability and assume mean reversion. And those aren't bad. Uh, that's not, th- those aren't bad assets. It's like real estate assumes some level of mean reversion. If you're, you're you buy into dips and you, you, Stocks assume some value investing assumes a mean reversion. There's nothing wrong. There's there's smart ways to play those, but uh, nonetheless, you are going to take big drawdowns in those asset classes during periods of secular declines, during changes in the business cycle. Um, and then there's long volatility investments that actually profit from change and non-linearly profit from change, uh, and that are non-correlated. And those tend to be tend to have elements of uh, nonlinearity to them and tend to uh, actually profit from uh, trend as well. So a lot of people talk about volatility. They only think about volatility in terms of, of the movement of the stock market. But when, when, you're, when you're owning volatility, you own something called gamma, which is the trend in the underlying asset. In many ways, the, the more the option moves in your favor, the more exposure you have to the op. op to, to, to the underlying asset. Uh, that's that's gamma. In many ways, you're not only benefiting from the vol exposure, but you're also benefiting from this trend exposure in the underlying asset, which is something that becomes very, very valuable when there is not the mean reversion. People come on in, stocks drop 20%, real estate drops 20%, and all of a sudden, uh, people come in expecting it to mean revert, but it keeps going down, negative 50, negative 80 percent. That's where volatility becomes uh, volatility investment becomes nonlinear, and uh, commodity trend has that gamma effect as well. So these are these are ways that uh, you can capture this momentum effect and, and to profit from change, and they tend to be non-correlated with investments that assume the reassumption of stability. And that's so important to building a balanced portfolio. Uh, you know, going back to the idea of a Rodman analogy or a football analogy, just because you're on a scoring streak doesn't mean you you pull your defensive rebounder out of the game. Uh, just because in soccer, when you're on a scoring streak, you don't pull your goalie out of the, the goalie box. But yet institutional investors, desperate for yield, will continuously chase excess returns that are correlated when in actuality, the value of that non-correlation and convexity to these other investments is worth more in the composite. That's a lesson that people learn, have learned, it seems like learned the hard way over and over and over again. 
But you brought up bonds, and this is very interesting. In, in 08, and look, if you've been a Real Vision listener, I'm sure a lot of people have listened to Real Vision. You've heard me talk about this for years. Uh, going back to the original Real Vision interview with, with uh, Grant, how bonds are convex instruments when there is yield, when there's an ability to cut yield down to zero. But they lose that defensive non-correlation uh, benefit and their convexity benefit with yields at the zero bound. So, and we've seen this, the 60-40 stock bond portfolio struggled to control drawdowns during the Great Depression. And they reduced interest rates to close to zero. And once you reach that zero bound, the defensive properties of bonds, high income, uh, uh, high quality bonds become neutered. And this is why you need to look to alternatives in order to supply uh, some defensive properties. And, you know, with the with the 10 year Treasury hovering, hovering around 50 bips, I mean, this is where we're at right exactly. now. And when we're, you know, think about Rodman, I was thinking about some other, you know, sports analogies or metaphors before. And I was thinking about even uh, what we call soccer or, or European football is if you look at the team Liverpool, you know, they recently signed, you know, Virgil van Dijk, who's an amazing defender and they have an amazing goalkeeper in Alisson. But the point of hiring both of those players was that so their front three could go out on their all out heavy metal attack. So it's, yes. it's about the, the combination, getting the combination right. I don't know if you Remember when we were kids, there was a Nintendo game called Ice Hockey. It was the first game, but you had to pick between small little fast guys and like medium guys and the big fat guys. The fat guys were slow, but they could knock the small guys down. But you needed the right combo in your portfolio to have a winning team. Balance. Exactly. And so what you were just hinting at, you know, with bonds being that uncorrelated trade, and a lot of people tend to think about uncorrelation. But what we like about long volatility and tail risk is the structural negative correlation of when you're buying options and et cetera. So part of you know, portfolio construction has this cornerstone of sharp ratio. And maybe if you get a little more advanced, maybe you use a, a, a Sortino ratio based on you know, downside volatility. But when you're thinking about long volatility and tail risk, you can't really put those in a sharp or a Sortino ratio, especially because you have like a punctuated equilibrium with these. So yeah. if we don't have a good mathematical you know, Gaussian metric for long volatility and tail risk, how do you think about putting those in your portfolio? And how do you think about positioning them or position sizing? Well, there is a massive failure of institutional portfolio management in only looking at the efficient frontier in terms of uh, returns and vol. This is, a, you know, risk return. We think we think in terms of these variables, but we don't include a key variable, which is liquidity. When you are in these other asset classes, that rely on the assumption of stability, you're actually in many ways short liquidity. And when you're positively exposed to, to change through something like long ball, you are long liquidity. What do I mean by that? Uh, what I mean is that a dollar at the bottom of a market crash, when valuations have come back to earth and when stocks are cheap, or when real estate is cheap, is worth more than a dollar at the top of the market cycle. Wouldn't we all like to have uh, more money at the devil's bottom in, in, in 2008? 
uh, or in March of this last year. So people tend to think or imagine that investors that investors are selling things because they're panicking. That's oftentimes, while true, overblown. What is occurring is liquidity squeeze. People are blown, being blown out of their bait, levered basis trade positions. This is what's something we saw in March. People are being blown out of their uh, short volatility positions. They're facing margin calls. They're facing draws on their private equity. So the rest of the mean reverting uh, investment strategies that rely on stability suck liquidity. There's, they lack liquidity. They're short liquidity. And something like a long ball strategy gives you liquidity. It gives you the liquidity when liquidity and a dollar is worth more. It's giving you that. These other strategies take it away. So it's amazing to me that many institutions will throw money in illiquid investments like real estate, private equity, that actually suck liquidity out. And then we'll say, well, they have a higher sharp or Sortino ratio than something like long volatility. Well, these are investments that are correlated to the business cycle, the rest of the rest of one's portfolio, and require liquidity when the dollar value is greatest. But that is not built into the way that risk is evaluated. There's no metric. I've been trying to think of one actually and work on one, but there's no metric that values the liquidity benefit from a strategy that's giving you money when money is dear. And that's helping you avoid a margin call. So if we go back to the sports analogy, if your team is down three points in the fourth quarter, what is the value of a second and third shot? The basket. It's massive. It's the difference between being thrown out of the playoffs and losing the game and having a chance at survival or winning the championship. So you need players that can score and you need players that can get that rebound and give you a second chance when your first shot or second shot misses. So in, for investors that had long volatility in their portfolio, this last March, I think the average long ball fund was up 30%. You can stay invested in that, or you could take that profit and reinvest it and rebalance it in your equity exposure. For investors that had 20 or 30% of their portfolio in long ball, March was no big deal. On a day-to-day basis, hardly noticed a problem. Before we dig into that a little bit more, when you say day-to-day basis, I want you to expand on that because I think another thing that investors typically look at is their monthly returns or they look at month to month over, you know, multiple year time horizons, where if you look at long volatility daily, especially if you're able to hold in house your short volatility and your long volatility assets, 
speak to a little bit about looking at a daily timescale versus actually looking at a monthly timescale. For example, we touched maybe negative 35 intra-month on the S&P uh, in March, but at the end of the month, you know, negative 12.4. So talk to me about daily versus monthly. Yeah, this is something that I think is incredibly important. It's typical to evaluate funds on a month-to-month basis. There's nothing wrong with that. But in many ways, um, that's like saying, okay, I'm going to go I'm going to be driving to go visit my family in Michigan. Well, I could go through, I could go to California, go to Colorado and then drive to Michigan, or I could drive straight up from Texas to Michigan. Um, it's, there's a lot, there's a lot of different ways you can get from Austin, Texas to Michigan. So I think in the same vein, monthly returns don't give you a good picture as to the performance of any strategy, but especially convex strategies and non-correlated strategies. Uh, In some instances, you may see situations where uh, managers might go up 60% and then give back 20%. This is not uncommon with these convex elements. So in this sense, by looking at daily returns, for a long ball manager, you get a much more nuanced understanding as to number one, the power of the convexity, and number two, how well that anti-correlation is working with the rest of your investments. And it also helps you understand that whether or not someone is actually someone is actually following a strategy. Because you have some people that 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 could, you know, for example, a manager, I've, I've seen this before where someone says, well, they weren't a long ball manager, but they were a relative value manager. They were like, well, look, every single time we had a market sell-off, we performed. Well, that's because they were selling skew and selling optionality. So they were actually playing a mean reversion trade um, uh, for most of the sell-offs until until that finally uh, broke on them and hurt them. So I think it's very important to understand the nuance and look at daily returns and uh, and. And that that provides an element that's uh, much more clear as to the effectiveness of of what the manager is doing. There is no silver bullet. You you wouldn't hire just one uh, equity manager. You wouldn't hire just one bond manager. Long ball is no different. There are all types of very strong, reputable long ball players that do very different things and may profit differently depending on how a crisis evolves. So a mosaic approach among a bunch of different ball managers uh, is something that some of our best clients uh, often do. And as a result of that, I'm actually friends with many of the other ball managers in the space. I don't really consider them competitors. And there are times where I'm, I'll, I'll listen to somebody and say, well, if, if, if you're interested in that type of volatility, you should, you should talk to this other group. So for example, there might be managers that do better in exogenous shocks than endogenous shocks. Um, There are managers that might do better if vol stays elevated for six months versus jumps up over one month and comes back down. There are a lot of different styles of long vol. And if someone wants protection across the wide range, the best thing to do is to pursue a mosaic approach as you would with other strategies or to find uh, some type of aggregator uh, like Mutiny, for example. Say, are you speaking a love letter to me right now? You're, you're yeah, the choir. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a believer of it because not everyone has the ability to go put $200,000 in this long ball fund, another $200,000 in this long ball fund. It's just it's just much more responsible to have 
in aggregated um, if, if someone doesn't have the capital to be able to spread to spread and, and get the exposure across multiple managers. You know, when we're talking about you know daily looking at long ball and short ball assets on a daily basis, what we're really talking about is psychologically being able to sleep at night, to know that you have this convexity when, when markets sell off that's structurally negatively correlated because you don't want to sell at an inopportune time. You want to be able to sleep at night. Um, we were talking about, you know, we don't have a good metric for it. We don't either. Uh, what I really like is my ta- uh, partner, Taylor Pearson, has coined this term an entrepreneurial put option. Because you and I yeah. think about this much more holistically. If I own a house, if I own a business, I own a car, a lot of these things are implicitly short vol or, or implicitly long GDP. So I need to hedge out those risks. So if I'm an entrepreneur and I have you know, some long volatility exposure on the books and a crisis happens, a liquidity event especially, then I've, I've got this convex cash position that now allows me to either maintain payroll for extended period of time, you know, maybe... Uh, invest in CapEx or maybe even buy out my competitors because now I'm the only person in town holding this cash that now cash, as you alluded to, has a, a much different value. But part of the sleep at night that I, I really like is that, you know, I think you referenced, you know, the multiple times you've been on Real Vision. And I think if people go back and watch that, they would say Chris Cole's the long volatility guy, i.e. or therefore he's a perma bear. Now, I know you and I know you're not a perma bear. You're just a realist, right? A, a perma bear would be a pessimist, but a realist would say, look, bad things happen. I want to hold short vol and long vol. So if I have exposure to long volatility, I can actually hold more of that short volatility, that implicit short volatility, that beta risk. So therefore, it's almost like you switch and are like kind of an optimist. It's like, I'm, a, I'm allowing you to hold more equity and bond risk if yeah. you put more long volatility on the books, and then you can sleep at night and compound wealth better over the long term. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting, I think, playoff in that sense. You know, a quick side question is, you know, I think the question would be, why buy right tail? So if I hold stock and bonds or short volatility assets on the books and hold that risk, if I'm talking about long volatility, most people think of the left tail, but why buy right tail? I'll answer that in one moment. I want to go back and just to your point on it about being, you know, the idea of being a perma bear. I I think it is misguided in to think about it that way, because I think our mission is to help investors take risk responsibly, to give investors the freedom to take risk responsibly. So I don't see myself as being uh, put on an end of the world hat. The media likes to really, uh, the media really likes to push that idea. Maybe if you wouldn't uh, have called your paper volatility, if you wouldn't have called your paper volatility in the end of the world, maybe they wouldn't put that hat on. Yeah, it sells it sells papers. I kind of look at it this way: like I see myself as a special, like a special forces team, and my team is to help people get out of liquidity predicaments when they're in trouble with the rest of their portfolio. We want to come in, come in, and, and help. We don't cheer for the world to end uh, any more than a rescue team. You know, or firefighters cheer for for fires and for um, for misfortune to happen, but we prepare every day and try to think about every different scenario and design systematic strategies that are intended to profit from from these various regime states of the world, and um, and I think that's the difference. It, it'd be like it'd be like saying Dennis Rodman uh, hates high scores or hate right. scoring or all people who score. It's not the case at all. Um, it just, his focus is on something different to help the aggregate. 
I would never recommend somebody put all their money in a long ball fund. They should put their long ball fund to balance out the rest of their investments. And if they had done that this year, March would not have been a problem. They just, no sweat. It's just an opportunity for them. Um, to go back to the right tail concept, I think most people are very focused on left tail and understandably, but there's a different form of secular decline. And I've talked a lot about this where there is no way to destroy volatility. It can only be transmuted in time and form. Uh, and in my paper, The Allegory of the Hawk and the Serpent, I describe the two forms of volatility transformation. Uh, one is um, the what I say the, the left tail of the hawk, which represents this, this type of deflationary collapse. But then there's the right tail of the hawk, which represents the reflationary movement and where fiat is devalued. So this would involve periods like the uh, 1970s, where Nixon, Nixon depegs us from the gold standard, and uh, there's a massive devaluation of money. It, it would resemble periods like uh, 1919 to 1923 in Germany, where there's a hyperinflation, where vol, equity vol started at 20% and then uh, topped out at over 2,000% because nominal prices were exploding so much. In each of these cases, whether it's stagflation, hyperinflation, or any type of fiat devaluation or helicopter money type of scenario, stocks go up, but they don't, they don't keep pace on a real adjusted basis. The 1970s on a real adjusted basis was a depression for stocks, but in actuality, you had about a 30% drawdown, but they were a depression for stocks. But if you were invested in right tail gold, let's look at gold. Gold right now falls around 15. You know, for the, for the greater uh, point of uh, several several years, it's been as low as you know nine, ten ball. Gold volatility in the 1970s went all the way up to 80 percent. So, if you might be invested in equities, but if inflation is running at you know 10 to 15 percent a year. Your savings are being eroded. Uh, obviously, real assets are doing well, but if you're owning right tail volatility, particularly in the right asset classes, be it, be it gold or stocks, uh, that can provide excess return, particularly if layered on top of um, equities, to help make up for that loss in real adjusted income. Uh, so volatility is, is something that, that plays on both tails and I think is very, very important. We don't know. We are going to devalue. The world is going to devalue one way or the other. I'm not smart enough to know which way it is. There's, but there's only two routes. You default on the debt or you default on fiat. And this is going to be the reality that we encompass over the next decade. If a ball manager focuses on only one tail, they may miss the devaluation of fiat scenario. Uh, and I think that's that's something that's very, very important to, to look at and consider when evaluating long ball. But it also explains the role of gold, uh, things like Bitcoin. I, I believe it is, I have a small exposure to Bitcoin in my personal portfolio, um, which act like options. They have an option convexity component, particularly on the right tail of the return distribution. And commodity trend, which profits from trends in commodity price movements, creates a optionality through the dynamic rebalancing of linear futures positions. 
So uh, you don't need to tackle a right tail ball with only one bullet. Uh, it's the multitude of these different uh, alternative asset classes that can be uh, quite important. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. And also with right tail volatility, I think you'd written well about 1999, where we can, you know, most people think that volatility rises when you have a sell off in markets. You can have volatility rise as equity are rising, like we saw in 99. It's about the the volatility of those movements that can rise volatility as we have a melt up. And part of that melt up I like to think about is like, why do you want to monetize that right tail? It's kind of like maybe if you have your house and you know the houses in your neighborhood are skyrocketing value, everybody says, great, that's fantastic. Except for then when you go to sell your house and monetize it, now you have to leave your neighborhood because everything else has risen with it. That's right. So it's like, uh, so talk to me, yeah, how you view right tail if we have uh, rising equity prices or melt up in equities as, as well as volatility rising, which we haven't seen in a while. Well, it's, it's fascinating because uh, what we have seen in the last three months is truly unprecedented. We had one of the fastest sell-offs since the Great Depression. The Fed has, the Fed has, and and both monetary and, and fiscal policy, over you know seven trillion dollars of stimulus being pumped in, ten trillion globally, and that has filled the system with liquidity. And we have gone from a 2008, 1932 meltdown to a to a 1999 style melt up in three months. What we've seen are substantial structural changes. One of the things that I think is incredible is that if you look at mean reversion as measured quantitatively through something called autocorrelations, the one-year mean reversion of the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average is at all-time highs. We have never seen a more mean revertive market uh, driven by this melt-up in history, never. It's unprecedented. In fact, it blows away any other measurement of mean reversion. And so now we're in a market, we've gone from this deflationary collapse to a market that resembles the worst speculative melt-ups in history. And from, from in my world, as a, as, a vol, as, a, as a vol practitioner, that really means three things. You have spot-up and vol-up. So you have these environments where both uh, – where, where the movement of the underlying becomes correlated with the ball. Most people think about the VIX going down with, with, uh, with the market uh, going up and uh, the VIX going higher with the market going down. But the VIX is agnostic to price direction. It only cares about the movement of the underlying. So when you start to see these daily 1%, daily 2% moves higher in the S&P, uh, this, this drives this dynamic of higher vol, spot up and vol up, and we saw we've seen that in uh, we've seen that in China in 2015. We saw it in Japan at the onset of Abenomics and the blowout of many of those Uridashi structured notes. We've seen it in 1999 with the dot com bubble. Um, it's it's been prevalent in almost every major speculative bubble. From an option standpoint, the other thing that that is particularly prevalent prevalent is uh, substantial right tail skew in in options prices. And this is this is uh, pronounced in the most popular names, 
uh, the Fang stocks for exa- are perfect examples of this. And many of these uh, popular stocks, be it Tesla, be it Apple, are trading over 90th percentile uh, of measuring call implied volatility versus after money volatility. It's what I call right tail skew. What that means is that you have a lot of speculative um, investors putting a ton of uh, making a lot of speculative leveraged bets on the right tail of the distribution. We saw a lot of that in 1999. There were entire con men who sold uh, programs to investors on how to bet on right tail options during that period of time. And we're seeing that now again. The names are different. The, uh, the retail investor access is different. It's, uh, it's not Yahoo message boards anymore. It's Twitter. And it's not E-Trade. It's Robinhood. You know, and it's it's not uh, a bunch of boomers, but it's a bunch of millennials. But it's it's the same pattern generation after generation, and it 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 echoes the framework in the in the ball market as well. So I think I think these are are very very interesting um, phenomenons, and that that are hallmarks of of right tail uh, euphoria. I think about, you know, there's a lot of this like prohibitive nomenclature we have in the option space and certain words can mean many things. So I think about, you know, when you're talking about right tail skew and the overbuying of calls, I always also wonder at the same time is like when trades become inherently right skew and the overbuying of calls and then you put that trade on, are you now on a left skew P&L, meaning that you're predominantly going to only see risk go to the downside or how do you think about that? Well, I think that's what's interesting about that is that, you know, right tail skew, it means that people, at least in many ways, it's, it's better than uh, than putting a levered bet in the underlying because mm. at, at least at least you have a known loss profile. Um, but what what that is indicative of to me is that you have a lot of new investors coming into a market using options to excess leverage who are not even looking at the implied volatility. And they're, they're making these, they're using options not in a sophisticated way, but in a way that's really speculative to gain access to leverage in a way that they can't gain through other, they don't have the capital, and they're doing it in a way that, that is not necessarily informed. And that's... It's very telling, and it's something that you see time and time again. I look at that right tail skew, and I see something that is is is, yeah. You can you can graph the name, the names, the names and the situations change, but the numbers look the same as they did in the '90s. Another thing that's really interesting is sort of the leadership of the the Fang, or my call Fang Moth. You include, you know, Microsoft, and uh, it's it's fascinating to decompose the variance. Of these stocks, so uh, not you know since the last three years, these stocks have comprised over over fifty percent of the returns in the S and P. But it's very interesting to look at how what is the decomposition of the variance or the volatility? What's their volatility contribution? And one of the things that we're seeing is that uh, during periods of excessive gains in markets there's outsized contributions to these stocks, to the volatility of the market. And all of that is right tail vol. But, uh, but they're dropping and not buffering the S&P during periods of weakness. So these are all signs of speculative tops 
and uh, or potentially something that could continue if the government just decides to to continue handing out free money in all its forms and just monetize the federal. If we go full MMT and we go ahead and just make the the Fed's balance sheet uh, legal tender, and we just decide to go full full on fiat devaluation, uh, you you would see this phenomenon continue. I'm not smart enough to know whether we go left tail or or right tail, because ultimately that's a socio-political decision. But I think we'll know by this November. By November. So yeah. just going back to touch on the uh, the retail traders, obviously you need to pay attention where all those flows are coming in from and everything. But I think it's like, uh, you know, there's nothing as you know certain in life that the old are going to disparage the young, right? And I think about how how dumb maybe I was as a, as a youth, right? And you know we came up probably betting on the the first dot com bubble, right? And we all thought we were geniuses. So I actually look at the retail traders as like I think it's great. You lose money on calls on fan mag stocks or whatever, but through losing that money, a lot of them are going to dive deeper and go, oh, there's these other dimensions of implied volatility, skew, time horizons, and it, it's a it's an impetus to learn. So I have a much more I think positive outlook than that because I remember. Yeah. How, how dumb I was in my, not that I'm any smarter now, but like I, you know, these things happen, you know, perpetually, like you're saying over time, you brought up an interesting point. I think that you think, you know, the default's going to happen, whether you believe left skew on the left tail or the right tail, but you said something very interesting. I think you said over the next decade, or I'm not smart enough to figure out if it's on the left tail or the right tail. Can you see a scenario where Goldilocks straight down the middle the left tail or the right, you know, either that sharp deflationary default doesn't happen or that slow motion default of inflation doesn't happen. Is there a Goldilocks scenario over the short to medium term? And part of that is like not knowing exactly where it's going to come from. What we call Goldilocks would probably be the Japan scenario. Okay. Where, you know, Japan's been in 20 years of deflation. And, uh, you know, if you invested at the top of McKay, you're still waiting, right? Um, really, to make your money back. And uh, but it's been 20 years of of deflation, but uh, they've managed to to hold in there pretty well. Um, and you know, part of that is devaluation of they they've gone a fiat devaluation route, mm-hmm. um, which has helped trade to that to that effect. I'm going to go out. I'm going to say that that it's anything's possible. I'm not going to put that past, uh, it, but I'm going to go out and say that's, I think it's wishful thinking. I really do. Because when you look at these level of fiscal deficits, when you look at corporate debt to GDP, which is now close to over, it, it's over 50% now, I think, um, 20% of companies can't uh, make their interest payments uh, off of revenue, and we're just reliant on a continual rolling of debt. And what we've seen traditionally is that there's this kind of unholy trinity between volatility, liquidity, and credit stress. It's an unholy trinity. And if, if you want to know where where vol comes from, it's it's it, it, it comes from a lack of liquidity and, 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 and stress and credit on markets. And what we seem to continuously do is just flood the system with liquidity. 
flood the system with liquidity every single time. But liquidity is not a cure for insolvency. And we're at a point now where it is divulging into, and this goes back to previous quotes, um, because I, I think I, I talked in Real Vision, even way back to the original interview in Real Vision, saying that you know ultimately, ultimately the risk is that they keep flooding the system with liquidity, the income disparity becomes so large, and that it becomes a threat to our democracy. And I think I, I stated that in the New York Times interview, and I stated that in my first interview with Grant on Real Vision, uh, and this is now coming true. We're we're beginning to see a tear in the social fabric. And I think we have to make a choice whether or not there's going to be some element of uh, whether we're going to go through with some element of default or whether there's going to be some sort of fiat massive fiat devaluation. That And the idea that that can manifest itself without movement involved, I think, is uh, over a decade, certainly maybe over a year or a couple of months, you could suppress it. But over the next decade, when you have a massive amount when the baby boomers are entering into full retirement, when you have forced uh, distributions of of retirement savings, you know before this crisis happened, if you looked at the average pension system, they say it was seventy percent funded. But I didn't get a chance to release this research. I had a whole paper that I never released, but um, before the crisis hit. Um, but I, I recalculated the pension systems using. Uh, expected returns of about five and a half percent or five percent, which is what what true returns are for their portfolios over a hundred years. And before the COVID uh, crash, the average pension system went from 70% funded on these these new baseline return levels to under 50% funded, with a third of them under 30% funded. So you really have already pre-COVID an insolvent pension system. Your point is correct. I'm not worried about the kids. You know, uh, I can't believe I'm saying kids because I'm <laughs> getting old now. Uh, I, I think you and I went, you know, you and I cut our teeth in the dot-com bubble and kind of, you know, probably made mistakes and this and that in the framework of it all. But uh, the kids are going to be fine. I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about the retirees who are relying on these massive pension systems for their retirements. And these pension systems are completely geared towards long GDP investments with no anti-correlated defensive exposure. That is, that's what I worry about. And I think the culture of these institutional investors has not embraced the thinking required to survive through a major secular change. There is, and I talk about this at length in my in my uh, Hawk and Serpent paper, but how the how unusual the last 40 years were of asset price history, how stable it's been. And that's been a combination of the fact that rates have dropped from 15% all the way to zero. It's been the fact that you've had uh, uh, a, a major class of, uh, of positive demographics, uh, baby boomers coming to to uh, entering their careers in the 1980s, entering the savings. Uh, and then on top of it, you have uh, taxes drop all the way down, massive drops in taxes since the 70s. So these have been huge, huge booms 
to all asset markets. And, and now we're at rock bottom. And despite all that, you would think that there would be excess savings, but we have historical deficits on every single level. The, the highest corporate borrowing, highest corporate debt to GDP in American history, highest uh, federal deficits. I, I mean, it's, it's staggering. So I, I don't think where we are, I would be shocked if we can find a Goldilocks path for another 10 years. You know, maybe, maybe for another couple months, maybe another 10 months. But if we go, I, I don't think we go back to a 2017 environment. And if you look at the history of, of Vol, and if you study Vol across history, across different countries, in, in deflationary uh, periods of secular change or inflationary periods of secular change, this idea that you have a period of Vol that gets over with in a month, Vol remains elevated during periods of secular change between at a minimum three years up to 10 years. Vol of the equity markets would have realized over 30 during the entire decade of the 1930s and had multiple retestings of, of, uh, of above 60. Look, if the Goldilocks scenario happens, no big deal. That's why you have equity. That's why you have your house. That's why you have your real estate and your private equity. But we are woefully underprepared as a country um, with pensioners and retirement retirees for a scenario where, where the opposite occurs. And I would put the odds much greater. The good news is that Individual investors, family offices, uh, small investors can be more nimble than these mega institutions in instituting the right steps to insulate their portfolio. And that is the good news. And so we frequently hear this question, have I missed the boat for the long volatility tail risk, you know, after what happened in March? And as you referenced earlier, endogenous and exogenous events. So you know, a lot of us look at March as a liquidity event, which is endogenously created. And then a lot of the things you're referencing with pensions and everything else is, and with the overarching economy can be an exogenous event that plays out over the next few years. Is there a scenario, obviously you don't believe you missed that long volatility boat because you're talking about volatility can cluster at a higher level. And we've seen that for years on end. Is there a scenario where you would take long volatility off your books or is, is long volatility always going to be on your books because it asks, acts as a ballast to those other short volatility assets and it allows you to take more exposure to them. I absolutely think there's a point in time where you take long volatility out of your books. Absolutely. That's what it's there for. It gives you liquidity. So in that sense, you can be in a situation, and we expect this of our investors, where uh, during a period of asymmetric returns, uh, someone rebalances their portfolio at the end of the month and pulls down takes some of that off the table and reallocates it to equities or reallocates it to real estate or reallocates it to, to uh, so that's in that idea, I, I don't think you ever want to get the rebound and just hold the ball until the clock runs out. So there is, there is a need to rebalance that. I understand um, monetizing and rebalancing it, but would you ever take your volatility exposure to long volatility exposure to zero? Well, we are, we're very opportunistic the way that we trade ball. And there's different ways of trading vol. Some pure play tail risk players constantly keep the exposure on. And that's more like an insurance policy. There's been a tremendous amount of uh, uh, 
media on some of these tail risk players. But I think when you look behind the results and actually adjust the returns based on uh, notional rather than margin, uh, these are these act as an insurance policy. When your house burns down and you get the insurance, you don't say you made 100% of the value of your house. <laughs> you, 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 you paid out, you got an insurance payout. But that's one form of vault trading. We're not tail risk players. We're more opportunistic. And what we have sought to do and what we have done is over the last 10 years of our returns make money and deliver anti-correlation to investors. That's our objective. Um, and so as a, as a result of that, we do not always have insurance on every moment. We're very opportunistic. We're looking to buy it when it's efficient. But I think, I think from a portfolio standpoint, if you're an investor looking to invest in Vol and have a mosaic of different managers, it's important to think of it like an asset class, understand what your portfolio asset class what, what your allocation should be to that asset class and maintain that allocation, take profits when there are gains, but this is what's important, re-up exposure when you have gains in equities into the long ball. That's the other hard thing. So nobody, look, it's, you go back and you look at a period like uh, 2017, we had some of the lowest ball in the history of equity markets. Who would have wanted to take gains in stocks and put them in vault. That was not a popular time to do it. But that's right when the vol regime started to shift. One of the most difficult things about these strategies is that they they don't always look good in the rearview mirror. One needs to trust and take a multi-decade view and understand that this is not for a rainy day, it's for a multi-decade. It's a core portfolio holding that should be reallocated and rebalanced both up and down in accordance with the rest of your investments to get the best result. And it's very difficult for people to do that because it's a drag. Like when, when markets are going to the moon and things are working out great, it's a drag on the portfolio. And when the world is ending, you're so scared you don't want to get rid of it. right? You don't want to take your profits and reallocate. So the behavioral biases are massive. And that's why having a, a program that – that rebalances appropriately is so important. Um, but me as an active manager, I, we, we, are, we are constantly adjusting our exposures in various multi-asset class balls based on where we see the opportunity, um, which is maybe different than what a top-down allocator should be looking at. And almost every complex thing in life inherently has shitty trade-offs. And so we talked about the pros and the cons of, of just pure tail risk and some of the benefits and, and then also some of the exposure it has to the, on the negative side. How do you respond to the trade-offs when you're an active manager that some people say you cannot time tail risk? You can't time tail risk in the sense that because I, you never know when there's going to be a um, – you never know when there's going to be a spark that causes a fire. But this is what I will say, and it goes back to the concept of volatility. Vol is not just something that happens out of the blue in a macro sense. We think that vol is entirely COVID, but really COVID is a spark that ignited a debt crisis and a liquidity crisis. This crisis was coming and will still play out regardless of COVID. 
And we think that 2008 was caused by Lehman Brothers going bankrupt. If it wasn't Lehman, it would be somebody else. Because if you take ball, and we've done this in prior Real Vision interviews as well, if you look at debt levels, volatility regimes, periods, multi-year periods of elevated volatility follow the debt cycle. It goes back to the unholy trinity of, of uh, liquidity, volatility, and credit risk. So companies become incredibly over-levered. They're stealing from the future to bring to the present, and that temporarily reduces volatility. And then when there's a disruption in growth, they can't pay back their debt. That results in margin and poor margin calls and poor liquidity in a non-virtuous cycle. And that elevates fall. So when you look at volatility regimes, they follow credit cycles and credit boom and bust cycles. And as a result of that, and those credit boom and bust cycles in many ways are something that you can look at and to a certain extent um, have some success in seeing the underlying conditions. What has made, I, I like to, I, I've used this analogy before, it's, it's, like a, it's like forest fire or an avalanche. There's no way to actually understand the spark that causes the forest fire. But what you can do is you can look at the underlying conditions that will cause the spark to become a fire. When there's a lot of dry kindling on the ground, when there are high winds, when there's potential for lightning, when there is um, a lot of oil and chaparral, um, all of these conditions, one of them alone is not enough, but when you put them all together, the probability that a transformer blowing up becomes a fire or a lightning strike becomes a fire or a, um, an errant uh, camper who doesn't put out their embers becomes a, a massive wildfire go up dramatically. So one of the ways to kind of understand vol is to look at these underlying conditions and to see what underlying conditions uh, uh, allow one to kind of time into volatility events and volatility movement. What's fascinating, though, is that and this is a new wrinkle in the equation. The Fed is doing the same thing. We have quantitative models that evaluate many of these different factors uh, globally across markets and have been particularly, uh, I think, effective in, in giving early warning signs as to when volatility will spike up. What becomes fascinating, though, is that the Fed is looking at these same factors. And you can never gauge the extent of the Fed's response in bazooka. And this is what is in incredibly unusual, is that we now have, in real time, uh, a Federal Reserve that responds to these underlying market credit volatility interbank lending stress periods and are preemptively moving. And this is a unique wrinkle across history. And it makes it a little bit more difficult to understand how the end game plays out. It's the thing where you're not able to go back and look at the Great Depression and say it because the response time is so much quicker and proactive, comparative. This is, this is the challenge and uh, it's not something to complain about, it's something to be aware of. And it's part of the unique challenge of, of managing vol today. So Chris, you and I can talk forever. We spent hours and hours on the phone before. Um, thinking about the future, and maybe this is kind of a teaser because we might be running over to overtime here, but how do you think about as we move into these 
you know, different market environments, like you're saying, the dynamic changes, whether it's a, a more proactive Fed. Um, now that we've had a liquidity shock, maybe you need to move over into pan asset class, you know, protection with options. You know, what is on the horizon for you guys as far as at, at Artemis Capital of what are you looking into? What asset classes? What kind of trades are you looking at, you know, as, as we're sitting here in 2020? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Artemis, uh, the very beginning of Artemis came down where I started trading VIX futures and VIX options. That was the basis and the founding of the firm. But over the last uh, over the last couple of years, we have really expanded out across multi-asset class and are looking at diversified vol and looking at finding ways to signal volatility and, and, and find flags for volatility uh, using uh, global cross-asset data. So we're scanning the globe looking at different uh, features that might indicate the probability of volatility breakouts in different asset classes, and then valuing the volatility in those asset classes using the traditional volatility arbitrage techniques that, uh, that, uh, that are the crux and basis by, behind many managers, but actually augmenting those with additional data that goes far beyond. So I, I see us uh, going from what really was a VIX specialist into a cross-asset momentum macro long ball shop and doing it in a way that is very capital efficient for our investors. So an investor can uh, use an SMA and, uh, and actually, in a very capital efficient way, layer our exposure on top using listed, listed options uh, that gives them the ability to to uh, have capital efficiency and convexity at the same time with positive carry. Well, capital efficiency is my favorite subject. So before we go on another rant, well, I guess we'll have to revisit this in the in the near term. But Chris, just want to thank you again for coming on ahead of the curve. I, I always really enjoy talking to you, and it was a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to be back on Real Vision, as always. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.